sounds like. Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. Uh, How are you guys doing? I've got such a great guest for you today, Deb O'Nair. And she's actually probably coming up the elevator right now as we speak. So I'm going to get started, uh, and I'm, you know how I'm going to start? I'm going to start by thanking you and welcoming you to Radio Free Brooklyn, my favorite radio station uh, on every, like, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, the ones I've listened to. And, and um, I'm trying to get through to the Eastern Hemisphere, and I'm starting. I've been doing pretty good, but I can only vouch for one hemisphere. So anyway, but... Um, you know, we, we're a really great uh, free radio station, and we would love you to get to know us better. So go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, uh, check us out. We get on our newsletter. Get on our newsletter because you know what? We have news. We're, we're, we, are, we are like in full swing. We went through the pandemic. And we made it. I'm very proud of us. I'm actually kind of proud of myself because God knows that was a mind fuck, you know. So I want to tell you a little bit about our guest today. And then I'm I'm going to put on some music of hers. And then I'm going to go out in the hall and, and search for her. Oh, there she is. I just, as I was just saying that I was going to search for her, she showed up. Anyway, we are really, really, really lucky to have this person, Deb O'Neill, who is um, somebody that I was, somebody that was, you know, famous, certainly in, in the music scene. And, and uh, okay, we're going we're gonna to just do this. Deb, sit over here in that chair. This is your... See this hot off the presses. This is happening right now in real time. Um, so, and um, her, she came here from Harrisburg um, in a band called uh, T. What was it? Tina Peel, and um, she with with her 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 partner, um, um, Rudy. And uh, they they came here together, and they hooked up with other musicians. And they, you guys were like really, really, really well known. I mean, you played; they played all the major, major, major clubs here. I mean, as a matter of fact, during the eighties, if I had thought somebody, a nerd, a dork who was at home in bed by eleven, would be sitting in the same room with Deb O'Neill. I would never, ever, ever have believed you. So she's here right now, and you know what we're going to do? I'm going to play. Um, well, the band, the the uh, the band. I think that is most. Is this the most current band for you? Well, the Fuzz Tones were the middle band. Das Furlines came after the Fuzz Tones, mm-hmm. but then I went back to the Fuzz Tones. Okay, okay. So Das Furlines is a all female uh, psychedelic polka band. Is that right? That is correct. And we're going to play this first song called 
Nixnian and do Nixnian Frankenstein. Did I say that right? Nixnine Frankenstein. Nixnine Frankenstein. And you want to just tell us a little bit of what the song's about? The song is about every single one of us. We're reading, we're at that time was reading a book called Women Who Love Too Much. And the disastrous relationships we were having with boys in our lives. And, uh, and our bass player wrote the lyrics, and then we put it all together ourselves and wrote the music. Cool. Okay. Well, here you go. For your listening pleasure, we are going to have Nick's Nine Frankenstein. Okay, let's do this. Uh, all right. We're going to be able to do this. Had to run up those stairs. They were using the freight elevator. Okay, Jack, can you want to say hi to Lisa? Yes. Okay, fine. They look at each other's eyes. Wasn't that cool? Like, have you ever heard anything like that? Really? Um, so anyway, uh, Deb made it here, which I am so excited. And, you know, so it's so weird because, like I was saying, like, I just want you guys to understand, first of all, the Fuzz Tones was a very, if, if you're, you know, Deb and I are in the same age group, but if you are younger, newer to New York, pre-80s, which I know some of you are. 
I mean, you know, some some there are definitely young young people listening. Well, anyway, um, so they were um, a garage psych punk band, and you know, the term fuzz zones came from their utilize the fuzz box. Anyway, it was just um, a very original band, and they played. They were called the Gurus of Garage Grunge. So Deb, this person here with me, Deb, was in this really, like, I just want to get, I'm trying to give you the picture of who is here, who, somebody who I am going to connect with now. Uh, the person who is here, who I don't really know very well, is somebody who was, like, in the middle of all the rap that was the Lower East Side in like like when people were really afraid of getting on the subway and really like women were not you had to be a very very tough woman so Deb you're a really tough you're you're a really tough woman I I think that I am yes yeah growing up with uh, boys all around me yeah how many kids uh, I am one of three children that were adopted, two brothers, and then the family that adopted uh, me into it had all boys, all boy cousins. I had two female cousins, but they were much older, so I had not met much interaction with them beyond listening to their cool music and watching them iron their hair and put... <laughs> iron coke. their hair? Yeah, the boys? No, the, the oh, two, two older co- female cousins. Oh, cousins. Yeah, cousins. And uh, putting Coke cans in their hair. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I could see that. that I was think I might have had a soup can in my hair in that my day. That was the 60s. That was totally the 60s. Sleeping with a soup can in my head. Yeah, I could I could see that. An empty suit can. Uh, empty, empty clean. Yes. Clean, folks. Don't get like, <laughs> yes. don't act like that. Yeah, but uh, it did take a lot of balls to move so, to where I moved in 1977. So you were living in Harrisburg, and this was your boyfriend. Yes. And you guys were formed a band together in Harrisburg? Yes. And were you pretty much unsuper... I imagine you must have been like unsupervised kids or something like that. Mm, I was not a supervised kid when growing up, but um, I got a job. Rudy got me the job. It was a CETA program job. And Tina Peel would perform during that period when Jimmy Carter was president. And we had actual federal job playing our music in Harrisburg. But Tina Peel was also very well known in D.C. That's where we started off, and that's where our our first record mm-hmm. came out of. So what was your lifestyle? Were you, like, living in, like, I imagine in, like, deserted uh, you know, like uh, apartment buildings, you know, uh, what, what, what do we used to call that? Uh, in, in Pennsylvania? Or, or well, or like what was New your York. lifestyle like? Yeah, in general. Oh, in, in Pennsylvania, it was very, very uh, frugal Catholic family. My father had his own business. He lost his first business. He had to start another business. So we lived in these little brick row homes that were for veterans, uh, mm-hmm. initially built very small and um, not in the downtown inner city area, but in the outlying areas. Mm-hmm. And I went to Catholic you went schools. went to Catholic school. Yes. And so your parents didn't have any birth children. No, they did not. So as the three of you, did it feel like a pretty stable family? Did you feel loved? 
I've, as an adopted child, you knew you were adopted. I knew I was adopted. I felt loved, but I think I felt like I wasn't liked. What, Lo- do, you, what do you mean by that? Loved and liked is two different things. I think I was just hard, hard to handle. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really funny because I would say that, I mean, I had a fairly, well, I don't know, I on, on paper, certainly conventional although my parents were crazy, but like the thing is, is that I don't think my parents liked me either when I was loved. But but yeah. when you're adopted, I'm, I might have more questions. It definitely has a lot more questions, especially if you have some kind of subconscious ingrained experience of abandonment. You yeah. want to be liked. So this is what I'm going to, I just want to tell these guys. So I am like really honored because Deb reached out to me and asked to be on the show. So this is a huge compliment to me, but I'm just going to, I'm just, and I know Deb because we've met at a couple of like, you know, Club 57, you know, Mud Club reunions, I think we've met at a couple of those. Although Deb, Deb is like, definitely the center of them. I am somebody who occasionally would show up. Um, I should next time you've got to like, really, I got to hang on you and meet every single person. You know, I was like, I was a dork looking up to all these people were having all this wild time. I was also in my twenties and I was a very good girl. Look, and we're here. We are in the same room, except you had a whole life where I was, you know, in an office for never mind. So anyway, but I just want to tell you this one thing, guys, that uh, Deb shared a few weeks ago when she reached out that she wanted to talk about her life as an artist, musician, and also the psychological battles I fought in being born and abandoned for the first five months of my life and how it affected my artistic life. So we're talking about somebody who was abandoned and didn't have... Any idea? So when you were adopted, I mean, here's my problem about this whole show today. My whole problem is that Deb is a very complicated, fascinating person who I could interview every week for an hour and for like the next five years. And we might get through half a small portion of her life story, which is fucking fascinating. So. Or which has endless, endless, endless threads to discuss. So she's lived a million lives. So anyway, but the thing that we're going to, I'm going to try and focus on this part today. I want you, I want to understand like the person that we have in the room. And I also want to understand how she knew those five months before um, she was adopted or missing and how that's affecting her today. Okay, well, that's kind of the roadmap. I think we're going to try and go down in this quasi-fake therapy session. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> it does make sense to okay, me. Okay, so I'm going to keep keep it on track. I'm going to be interrupting you all over the place, sweetheart. Um, but as Deb said, like, I mean, she's somebody that, I mean, I'm meeting, I'm meeting an idol. I really am. So the thing is, is that, so you... You did. When did you find out? Did you know you were adopted? You knew you were adopted. Did you know about that? You didn't know about that. You didn't know where you were the five, first five months of your life. You're growing up. 
First off, I have to say my dog just got loose. I'm gonna, but he's in the office. He'll be uh-huh. fine. So, um, no, yes, that's right. I always knew my parents never made an issue of it, and I guess I, I would have had to have like just figured it out at the age of two when another baby showed up. We're all two years apart, mm. and that child was very, very had a very, very bad birth defect. And God bless my parents for doing that. They, yeah, what kind of birth defect? He had a very, very severe cleft palate. Half his face was gone. Oh, okay. So, but he was okay. It was a visual thing. Visual. Was it a health thing? Teeth, health, everything. Did he have trouble eating? Yes, all of that. Did he have uh, surgeries? Uh, many. Did he take up a lot of the family attention? Yes. So your parents sound saint-like, frankly. Well, that's the Catholicism, I think, that they followed so so intensely. Mm-hmm. They were very, very dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. And... uh and my mother was also taking care of her sister's two kids at the time as well. Your cousins. And were they at your house? Yes. In your home? Half, half the year they would be. Half the year they would be back in Philly with my grandparents. Oh, okay. Did they go to school with you? Uh, they went to the same schools. Oh, yes. okay. And then what about the third child, the, the youngest? The, the, he's the oldest. The first one was my older brother, and then I came in the middle, and then the younger one came. The oh, and then one with they the adopted another one after. Oh, the birth defect was the youngest. Youngest, yes. Oh, and by the time you got there, they already had the older one. Yes. And what was he like? Is he? We were all so different. My older brother ended up being more of like a yuppie type, mm-hmm. you know, very you know, college executive job. You know, mm-hmm. had to have the best of everything. All of that. Nice. Um. I was the wild bohemian intellectual in the middle, mm-hmm. and my younger brother ended up being like a redneck, gun-toting, truck-driving, guy, lo- loving Trump guy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still in touch with all of them? Um, unfortunately, my older brother passed away eight years, uh, eight nine years ago. Uh, uh, my younger brother, yes, I'm always in touch with him. That's good. Oh, that's good and difficult. It is difficult. Wow, a Trump guy and you. And I try to do my best to avoid those topics. Maybe some of the same same coin. Maybe two sides of the same. I mean, I'm going to say that I think you were fairly extreme as a youth. What do you think? You know, extreme, I wouldn't say I was was extreme. I was very interested in art, Mm -hmm. in performing, and in music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Extreme in the way where I would have some real bad temper tantrums. Mm -hmm. I have a really intense will Mm -hmm. when I set my sights on something that Mm -hmm. I have to make it happen. Mm -hmm. I put that to use very much in my work. Yeah, so you're very driven obviously you've done so many things and your life now is you live with your husband right and you didn't have any kids i've never had kids and never had kids okay so um i'm trying to so just can you give us a really i know this isn't fair but i can you give us a broad overview of the uh 80s and 90s being in the band traveling tell me like one of the highlight stories and what your lifestyle was like. I just want to have a picture of it. It was a pretty frenetic lifestyle because you weren't making money. You had to make money. 
you know, mm-hmm. and I was I was surrounded by many trust fund kids mm-hmm. who were at art school and, you know, being able to, you know, go about their daily lives and performance and and being over at Andy Warhol's factory. Oh, and, really? You know, and, wow. You, know, you being, were over at the factory? Well, once. That's Once or cool. twice, you know, with the Club 57. Did you know thing. him personally? No. But you, he was around a lot, guys. No, I was. And you would. I yeah. was. I was not a cute boy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I no. was a gay boy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and the, the the gay boys at Club 57 were there most often. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to get a day job, and I worked for Ian and Miles Copeland, who, you know, brought about the fame of the police. Oh, wow. And I, it was more working with Ian at his booking agency, and I used that as my foot in the door and Ian helped Tina Peel and the fuzz tones vastly, vastly booked us, helped mm-hmm. us get gigs, mm-hmm. helped us get a record mm-hmm. deal. You must've been a very confident person to get that. Like I picture you as a very, like in a certain way, very mature, you know, take charge person in that way. In that way, I was, even though that inside I was shaking in my boots because that was very scary to, you know, really try to take charge, especially being a woman during that time period and and trying to get breaking into the music business as a business person, Mm -hmm. not just a performer. I had to wear two hats. Right. I managed the band. I booked the band. You know, then I would be performing at night. I would take FBI bands around. I had to take care of them. Mm-hmm. I was always switching hats. I'm mm-hmm. very left, right. If you right. look up, guys, if you do your research and you look up Deb O'Neill and the Fuzzstones, I mean, I'll post this on the episode. I post a couple links on my Facebook page. But, you know, Deb was front and center in all this. She was the organ player, uh, writer, singer, um, accordion. You played the accordion in Dust for Alliance. I played very meekly a, a little bit of accordion. Yeah, I, I could but, play a little bit. But my my, my mom, my gra- I mean my dad, my grandmother, German family, they could play like crazy. But. Yeah, you're a founding <laughs> member of a very a founding and and you know starting starting member of a very very active band touring Europe and stuff yes. like that. So what was so were some so you were actually working during the day and going and mm-hmm. going out to gigs at night? What mm-hmm. was that like? Exhausting. 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 How did you do that? Uh, you know, I it you just when you're driven like that, I, and I always was like an insomniac as a kid as well. I just always had a million million ideas, things going through my head, movies running through my head. I oh, I ended up going to college for photography. That's what I'm working on mostly now, my my photography. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, um, but music always took a hold of me as well. I wanted to be a singer. I never thought I'd be a keyboardist. I wasn't mm-hmm. really wanted to be a keyboardist, but it just happened that way. And I could do it. So mm-hmm. I did it. Yeah. You must have a lot of innate musical skills and you can sing, obviously. So did you study music? Did your parents encourage your music? Um, they encouraged me to be in the church choir and to eventually be on the Lawrence Welk show. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, 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 you know, church can me. be a great yeah. source of musical inspiration and actually visual art, too. I mean, oh, church very. can be, be uh, 
Repressive, yes. A lot of iconic, iconic, you know, images in front of you there. Lots of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, But um, I'm I'm guessing you got a lot of music training through the church as a young person. Um, The training started with just piano lessons and then being in the church choir, um, a little bit of, you know, training. I learned Latin. I could do the whole mass in Latin. I can't do that now. I can't even remember it. Mm-hmm. But that's what they taught you yeah. when you were a kid. Good discipline. And yeah. in those days, going to Catholic church, you had to learn to speak Latin. Wow. And wow. Uh, so, but I had a natural ability to be able to figure music out in my head and mm-hmm. hear it mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot, you know, that's mm-hmm. instead of, you know, memorizing mm-hmm. it or, you know, being trained, I could read right. music, but I could so, hear it. So growing up, did you know about the first five months of your life or no? No, I did not. Okay. Um, okay. Did, let's, the, the, I, the only thing I did know was that I was adopted. And you didn't months. know a lot of the details I about it. Not, no did idea. You, when you were a kid, did you ask about the details of it? No, I never did. You be- just because I it would just I, seem normal probably. I think I just believe that my parents didn't know anything about it like where I was for 5 months, you know. And did you know there was a 5 month gap? Yes, okay. they did. Cuz you know, obviously they knew I was, you know, I was they adopted, said, adopted at, you know, you had 5, five months, months old. Right. The only thing they would always say was that I was extremely thin and scrawny and that they fat me up right away and they nicknamed me Butterball. (laughs) That's really sweet. I mean, I'm liking your parents. Uh, So did you freak them out when you, I mean, I'm imagining like what happened when you like left and started playing in a band and all that stuff. Did that make them really uncomfortable? Did they know what was going on? Was there where you was what happened there? Well, it did make them very not so much my father, but it did make my mother extremely uncomfortable. They did not want me in a rock band. They mm-hmm. did not, you know. Even while I was still at home, there were issues with the music that I was listening to. Um, putting my Roxy music, my mother, my mother put my Roxy music albums in the fireplace and was about to burn them because mm. of the nudity sure. involved in the photographs, you know, sure. in the models. Right. And Alice listening to Alice Cooper. She thought I needed an exorcism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They were much older. They were married already 12 years and 31 years, like 30, 31 years old when they started adopting children. Mm-hmm. And then my grandparents were just really, you know, totally different generational, right, right. you know, situation. There. Right. So there was a big gap. And so when so Rock- were you sort of like thinking, well, I can't. You know, they just don't get it. They, and they and just you, don't you knew get you it. couldn't argue with them that it was just like was, they were from a, another planet. It in was a way, also parallel a, universe. Yeah. And a deep quest for identity. Identity. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's why I love David Bowie so much. Mm-hmm. He was always searching for different identities, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. And, which is why so many bands. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, what was. Your lifestyle. So you were working. Were you exhausted? Were you meeting people? Were people trying to have sex? What was the like? What was like? I imagine like uh, a young woman, a young young babe in a band who's 
in that situation, it must have been, you know, you'd have you'd have a lot of uh, there'd be a lot of uh, you know men men trying things. So what what happened there? Like, what was your relationship with men and all that stuff? I actually did not have. I, I did. I had distrustful relationships with men in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- I didn't date much in high school. I was extremely. Although I would like make myself get up on stage, I was really, really, really shy. Well, wow, very, very shy, and very inward a lot. And uh, I had a, a one major boyfriend in high school who ended up moving to New York as well and was in a rock band and a, and a good artist. I, I drew myself to that side as those people being my real family members. Oh, so like you were pretty much insulated by your band then? Pretty much so. Yeah. I would say Did that. Did you travel in a pack? Yeah, pretty much so. And then yeah. I found like the, my, my girls at Club 57. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. girls that I ended up having my pack with. And who, Ann Magnuson. Mm, not, not so, so much. much. No, I don't. I don't no, know her really. Good. No, I know Anne. Yeah. Anne had like a lot of different, you know, activities. I knew Anne, of course. We were friends. We did Club Fifty Seven activities together. We did the wrestling, the ladies' yeah. auxiliary yeah. wrestling yeah. thing together. But uh, my pack ended up being more like Wendy Wild, mm-hmm. God rest her soul. Another wonderful woman artist, um, April. Miss mm-hmm. April Palmieri, who oh uh, yeah, I know who that. worked with John Sex, hung around John Sex mm-hmm. a lot, was friends with Klaus Nomi. Wow. Um, Rudy's sister ended up moving to New York, oh. so that was a very close close friend of mine. We were very tight, Renee, and uh, who else? That was pretty much. And Danny and Andy from Club Fifty Seven. We all kind of lived in the same neighborhood. Those mm-hmm. were the girls. Mm-hmm. Were my girls. So what was? So were you like going out every night? To was it exciting? Oh, very exciting! Very exciting. Of course, because I, I love the music so much. And having like Carte Blanche working at FBI, I could go anywhere and see any show. I could wow. get in anywhere. Wow! Not just because I was in a band. The band was, you know, reaching its. Right, was, heights. Right, but because of working with these bands, and then sometimes I was with the bands that were performing. I had to make sure, like they got their rider, they got the food they wanted, mm-hmm. the drinks that their press met mm-hmm. them. That you know, so you nobody were, was in their dressing room that shouldn't mm-hmm. be in their dressing room. That kind of stuff. So Just you were really hanging around deeply, deep, deep, deep in it. And um, um, so. How about drugs? Were there drugs? Did you take drugs? Well, that was, I think, another reason. Drugs and alcohol. Let's yeah, talk about that, that. Another reason why I was more of a loner and didn't hang around a lot of of these other people's uh, people because I did not take drugs. Ah. I did not. I did at that time period. I did not. I That's did. why we're here in the same room. Yeah. And I really didn't drink much either. I mean, socially here, a little there, but I was working so you much were really, all the time. Uh-huh. But you saw a lot. Of, there was a lot. I, I mean, it, of course, you, I witnessed. You were like probably one deal. of the few people who really didn't get I probably go down that. No, I didn't. I did. Because I, uh-huh. when Jimmy had uh, my brother 
the first musical influence I had was my older brother let me listen to his Jimi Hendrix records. Oh, wow. And that was like a, a spiritual awakening yeah. to me. That guy yeah. was God to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he died of an overdose. Oh, wow. I swore to myself I wouldn't touch that stuff. Good. Wow. I, I, but I saw so much degradation. I, yeah, I saw so much have. in my neighborhood, in the people I was hanging around, the people that I performed with, the yeah. people I saw a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a lot of lives I, destroyed. Yeah, you you were able to uh, be it deeply, productive. It, but it, it had hurt me, too. I felt really, I felt a lot of compassion for them and a lot of empathy and I really didn't know what to do, right? You know, well, except well, to just not be a part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I felt left out. Oh, interesting, because you weren't taking enough. Because I wasn't with the in crowd. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. You know, these a lot of these people are, are like glorified and adored now. Oh, some I'm of these people. Sure, I've no. So you know a lot of people that became famous or or were famous at the time and all that. Did you know the Talking Heads? I did not know them. Mm-hmm. I I worked in a recording studio that they were, mm-hmm. you know, working mm-hmm. in, but I never really had you, any interaction with you them. You work with a lot of famous bands. I and did. People. You work with Screaming Jay Hawkins. I know that. Well, the Fuzz Tones did, who I worked with when I worked with um, at Ian Copeland's office. I worked with Iggy Pop. I worked with John Cale. I worked with... The Police, Madness, The Stranglers, XTC, Squeeze. He had a huge roster. And in the mm-hmm. beginning, he would let Tina Peel, because we had Backline, and I pitched it to him. Mm-hmm. My dad encouraged me to do this. He said, don't be afraid, just do it. I pitched to him that Tina Peel had all this Backline equipment. And these bands are coming over from England. They don't have backline. They have to rent equipment. That co- mm. that costs money. Mm. I asked Ian, let us open up for these bands. They can use our equipment, and we can go out and play like D.C., Boston, so smart. Philly, yeah. you know, in all these places with these people to gain more access for people right. to hear us more. And he, he liked the idea, and he let us do it. Beautiful. So when you were touring, were you in, like, pretty decent situations? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. We played all the big clubs, and uh, mm-hmm. and then eventually, you know, the Fuzz Tones going on their own big tours. We played big, big theaters, yeah. outdoor festivals. Wow. So what would be, like, the biggest audience you've played for, you think? Like- mm. Well, one was in France. There was about 30,000 people Holy there. Holy shit. And then the last time I was over in France, we played the Le Mans motorcycle cross, oh, uh, which amazing. was in a big racetrack. And but it was mostly guys there. I always used to call it a snossage fest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of guys came and saw this band. But um, yeah, that wow. was almost that was I think about twenty mm-hmm. thirty thousand mm-hmm. people. But it must have been a really interesting time to be part of the music scene in New York. I mean, it's definitely the heyday of music yes, in New York. Yes, during the seventies right? and the eighties, it was. I felt this is this is what I wanted. I went to New York in eighth grade as a school trip, and when I got to New York, and just watching old movies, I always fantasized about the city life and and uh, New York and being into noir, noir you know, films mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
I told all my classmates, I'm going to move to New York. <laughs> and they looked at you like, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah sure, right. yeah, yeah, right, right. And you want to live? And, you want to live in this? And, and, and I did. <laughs> and I did. Yeah, you, you've, you yeah, know. you really did. I did. So let's talk about the first five months of your life. So when did you realize, or when did you start digging into the idea that you didn't know anything about? It? Like, what, what, what brought that up for you? What brought it up for me was when my birth mother died, because I did find her. And she died December 2020 of COVID. So did you know her when she died? Oh, yes. I had found her 20 years before. uh Uh-huh. And you just went out on your own and found her? At first, I tried Mm -hmm. to go out on my own to find her. And I I was assisted by my older brother's real sister as well, who Mm -hmm. found him. Mm-hmm. And she helped me get in contact with somebody at, in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and gave me more did, information. Did your parents know that you were doing that? Yes, they did. And were they supportive? Or they were. They? they were. And do you, do you have any idea why what like why you wanted to find her? Uh, identity again goes back. And when to you identity. say identity, are you like what am I? What's my nature? Or what's my? What do you mean by identity? I, I, for me, it was more like my path. I've had a lot of different paths and finding my way on those paths and the the discoveries that I made in those pathways. But also identity for me, I think, meant more feeling safe because I've always had this like underlying current of fear in me. Huh a very strong underlying current of fear. And do you think that has to do with being adopted? At first I thought that that was until I talked, started talking to different psychologists and psychiatrists Mm -hmm. about um, the trauma of birth Mm -hmm. and then, and what maybe that meant for me and where was I for the first month? Because I, I was explained to me about how formative your very first month of, of, your, yeah. of your life is and connecting with humans, the bodily touch, mm-hmm. the well, feelings of security, all of that. Yeah. As a, uh, as a uh, pretend shrink, uh, as a hobbyist, I mean, I've done a lot of research on um, pre-verbal, the pre-verbal, that's a pre-verbal time when you're taking in things and learning things and you really do, you are, you really do get a, imprinted with a lot of stuff that will affect you forever and you don't really you can't remember it um the times before you the times that you can't remember are very you know science can show you that they are very profound times not just me because i don't really have any credentials but look it up do your own fucking research so anyway um i always say uh so you you got really curious and you had a feeling of fear, feeling of fear that you just didn't know where you couldn't identify why you would have that kind of fear. That's so when you got in touch with, so the feeling of fear and wanting to know more about your, your early years, that was more, um, that curiosity came out of going to therapy and talking about. Yeah. 
that as well as like having anxiety issues, mm-hmm. you know, very young on, which, you know, created a form of OCD or oh. the deep anxiety, which was, I was very much like uh, Joey Ramone. My dog is chewing up your toilet paper. Mm. And I got it away from him. Hooray, success. So anyway, anyway. <laughs> um, going back to like, uh, oh, oh, I was much, uh, I was a lot like Joey Ramone where, you know, that kind of OCD where you couldn't get out of the house until certain things were yeah. very different, certain you have order. To touch things and do things like everything and Everything had start to be over. in a certain place. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it was just basically all it was was calming the fear. Right. You know, because right, right. if everything was not in place, everything was out of order. And that just meant for me of uh, fear. So what did you learn about those five months? Did you go back and do research or have you found out anything about it? I'm in the process of trying to find those mm-hmm. those. Uh, things out. And I did have some conversations with a family member of my birth mother who explained some things to me. My birth mother was not all completely forthcoming, which Mm -hmm. I could understand. I never wanted her to feel guilty. Right. What was that relationship like with your birth mother when you finally met her? It was a very good relationship. Was she happy to meet you? Was she happy to hear from you? Extremely so. Mm-hmm. Very and did much. You find so. out I think why? it was it was way more gratifying and 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 a healing process for her ah. than it was for me. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, t- yeah. that you turned out like great, and that yeah. you were accepting. And uh, I never, yeah. I never felt blaming her. Yeah, why did you know? No, it's really. Why did you get pregnant? Why did you do this? Why did you know? Just seventeen in 1957 and ran away from home for being molested by her stepfather. So that was your birth mother ran away from home. She was pregnant from her stepfather. No, no, not from her stepfather. She was being molested by her stepfather. So she ran away from home. Ah, and was she pregnant with you? No, she was not. Oh, that's what she ran away from home because she was being molested. And then at some other point she got pregnant. That's right. At, after she ran away from home, she was living in a, a small city, living with a cousin, getting into rock and roll and rockabilly. Oh, wow. She had a ducktail leather coat, rolled up jeans. She so, showed me a picture of a band, like a rockabilly rock and roll band on the back of a flatbed, and her and her friends are standing there. They looked like they were right out of John Waters' movie. Wow. <laughs> So it sounds like you actually, it's interesting genetics, right? Like you had that same spirit more than you did with your adopted mother. Yeah. Is that right? I think I had a wild itch that needed to be scratched a lot. And so did that make your step, your uh, birth mother happy when she found out, like when she met you and you, you, you guys have a lot in common, no? We had so much in common. It was bizarre because he has your pen. Yeah, it was bizarre because I collect vintage Christmas things and especially snowmen and Santas. And when I first met her for the first time ever, 
it was the beginning of February. She still had her Christmas things out. Mm. It was all snowmen and Santas. Mm. Mm. Is that mm. genetic? So what was your relationship with her like over the years? It was very good. It was uh, Was that healing for you? It was. Yeah. It I was bet. it was healing and and but it still brought up still like more issues because you found out more information and then right? i was getting more information mm-hmm. and then you know did you find out stuff about your father your birth father i through doing ancestry.com but I, not through your mother but she couldn't recall That's, what do you mean she, she just literally couldn't remember who she, who, who she, she slept with let's just say well yeah she had sex with him we know yeah that. She, she all she said was that he was older and when she got pregnant he said well i'm married and then she never saw him again do you think she was she didn't feel so good about having an affair with that guy or whatever it could have been that also i think it too at the time when i did meet her she was uh, had some health issues and she was on some medications and things that affected her memory ah uh. Yeah. Oh, so she might have just really not remembered. Yeah. yeah she gave me, that, and then it was some paperwork that had, like, a na- just first names. Back then, a man did not have to be on the birth certificate by law. Wow. Or get be have his name given to anybody. That was the law. And you couldn't then. get an abortion then and either. No. So it was kind of like men were really, that's what they really, that's right. what, that's what a lot of, don't get, let's not get off on that. Yeah. Because. She want, just, She told me she did want to keep me, but her stepfather forced her into this home. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so did she have any, what about the first five months? Like what happened? Did she have to give you up right away? Did she have any information? Yes. No, she was, you know, she was still, let's see, she would have been 18 then, but she had no way of financially supporting yeah. herself or, or having a child. I, she was not allowed to bring the child into the home situation. So she was put, she was, labor was induced on her. She was put in a twilight state and they yanked me out with forceps and mm-hmm. she never saw me again. Mm. That was it. Well, that's a tragedy. It that's is. so wrong. God, that's so barbaric. It is barbaric. Thank America. you, Catholics. <laughs> America. This is America. Okay, America in the 50s. But still, oh, uh, so one would assume that you were in, had five months in an orphanage. What do you think? I'm not sure because there was some things revealed to me after my birth mother died about me being very ill. You were ill as a baby. Oh. Uh-huh. And that, and there was some paperwork I got to see, and it was called Failure to Thrive. Mm. And uh, would not, I wouldn't take the formula. Mm. Hence why maybe when I was adopted at five months old, right. I barely weighed like 11 pounds. Mm. And that's pretty Terrible. light as Terrible. a five-month-old. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like your birth parents... Um, wanted to help children that really physically needed help. Very much. So I can imagine you would have been in that category. Yeah. So you weren't healthy. And did your parents, do you know where you were? Do you have a record of where your birth? Uh, No. So what, 
I don't. So it's completely unanswered questions. Those are very unanswered questions. I just reached out to Catholic Charities after I got off the phone with you the other day, and I talk, I did talk to them. They're going to look. They're they're going to search back to see if there's any more hospital records. Mm-hmm. Was I in foster care? You know, all of that mm-hmm. for, for five months. And what do you what do you what do you imagine? Do you have a way of imagining it? I have. I have a very photographic memory. Mm-hmm. And I have an image that keeps popping up in my head that that's bizarre. And it's nuns, just shadowy figures of nuns looking over top of me. Like I'm down very low, like I'm a baby in a crib and I'm looking up and there's nuns looking down at me. Mm-hmm. I have that mm-hmm. memory. Mm-hmm. That's all I can remember. Well, you know, it makes sense to me that you would have been in an orphanage, no? That makes sense to me, too. Yeah. But you don't know. But but often children are placed in foster care, but maybe not for quite that long. Five months is a long time. Also, I mean, being in an orphanage doesn't mean anything specific. That means that you could be you know, really well taken care of. It could mean that you were completely ignored. It could mean anything. Anything. Yeah. Totally anything. But obviously it wasn't ideal. I'm having the feeling that it was not. Because, because. Because of just the memories that I've had of, of a small child always being afraid. Always something that made me so afraid. And if I have to go to a doctor, forget about it. I get super afraid. If I have to have surgery or any kind of thing like that, I get really, really scared. Something about hospitals. So and something doctors. also about your maybe your relationship with your physical being, do you think? I I totally believe it. I think trauma like that is definitely ingrained into your cells. They're they're there. It's there. But also, I think as an infant at five months, um, part of what, you know, we we, it's all about touch and your physical being Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting your physical needs met, eating, going to the bathroom and formula, things like that. And so that stuff might have been irregular or not ideal probably not yeah probably I don't think not ideal. probably not so ideal i do love food now <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't well um the thing is is that you know and i think there are a lot of people who have fairly um let's say you know normal relatively normal infancies who may also be traumatized who often get traumatized, like you can have two parents, but if your mother had really bad postpartum depression or maybe one of your grandparents was particularly mm-hmm. sick or there was a move during your, you know, there there can be trauma in the first five months can come come from anywhere, That's really. True. But the, pers- the likelihood of you having it is more, more, more just more likely. So do you think um do you think that if you found out more information that that would be reassuring like what's your feeling about that? I think it would be reassuring but I'm also um investigating other processes to try and release 
that trauma. Uh huh. I've done some other exercises in doing that. Uh huh. Like what? Uh, I had a really bad problem with undiagnosed Lyme's disease. Where oh. I was pretty really sick for a long oh. time. But I went out to San Diego to the Optimum Health Institute. Mm-hmm. And they, they and you know they talk to you about a lot about you know what's going on with you physically as well as mentally. Mm-hmm. I told them a lot about this stuff, and they had different practices: yoga and raw food, and and wheatgrass juicing, and you know all this all this work that they do with people. Um, and but they also did uh, experimental um, processes of this rapid breathing in and out, in and out, Mm -hmm. in and out process Mm -hmm. to try and relive the birthing process and and release this trauma. Mm -hmm. It was bizarre. And and did that help? I think I was just too resistant to it. I'm not sure if I fully believed at the time Mm. that that I felt that I think I got just too resistant to it. Mm. It Mm. helped for a certain time period but then if i ever would um experience some other major trauma in my mm-hmm. life the fear just all came back mm-hmm. another like an another abandonment or a deep loss i've had a lot of really deep losses in my life mm-hmm. so um yeah so I wanna... have you always felt this anxiety that you're talking about like before the loss when you were younger like, oh yeah so it's always been there so Maybe so you can't really pinpoint it back to like certain things that you've been through loss as an adult or anything like no, that. No, I remember being just uh, even as a, a, a tiny child, always being afraid, afraid, just always having this underlying currency of like fear that people weren't and like anxiety. People weren't going to take care of you. I think, or, or maybe that I, I was just going to. Or right, or I was just going to be abandoned again. I think it was always the abandonment issue of uh, like, mm-hmm. in, and especially in really strict Catholic schools and everything. You felt, you know, and the way you know they, did. <laughs> did other kids treat you differently because you were adopted? Not when I was in that school. No, mm-hmm. not at all. And did you meet other kids that were adopted? Like, did being adopted stand out to you as a unusual thing? Um, not unusual. The words that my parents always used and made me feel was special. Mm-hmm. Did it make that it, it was yeah. special? So they that, were really that good you about were it. Special, you were and I got chosen. to pick you out. Yeah, yeah. That wow. I was chosen. Well, I give those folks pretty good credit. That sounds that sounds pretty good. I don't know. You know, I think that um, being adopted seems. Well, you know, it's really interesting because it's like you were adopted. I think, you know, it sounds like the circum... I mean, your life rocks. Your life totally rocks, and you seem like you're in a really good place now. You know, like, it's it's not like you went down some horrible... You, you went through a lot, and you're oh, still... But you're, I have. I have. I went down some pretty dark roads, but I came back. But you're kicking. But I can't. Yeah, I'm yeah, kicking. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're in the, front of me, and you're yeah. you're very present, and you're you you know you you seem great. I mean, I know I know we're only here for an hour, but <laughs> no, but I mean, no, I do. I I you, have. You know, I mean, you're not somebody. But, I I feel any real concern. I'm not like oh, this person has 
is in trouble. <laughs> no, you know, I, I see a lot trouble. of that too. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're not in trouble. So what what I'm saying is, I think that there must be so much anxiety or some sort of anxiety um, with being adopted anyway. Did you? And also, the other thing that's kind of weird is that. Um, you're in a way like your birth mother seems more in line with who you are. And I wonder if you must have been sort of biologically, psychologically out of place with your birth parents. Totally. You know, I think about that. I think about like people who are adopted, like Madonna adopts those kids from some other country. And it's like their whole like physical beings are like used to set, you know, centuries of different mm-hmm. environments. You know, you're from a, such a different, you uh, weren't in, in your natural environment. You weren't in your natural environment and probably amplified by, you know, whatever you went through. But I don't know how you'd ever get past that. Well, that's how, yeah, <laughs> you're right, right? Because I think it's uh-huh. very much uh, ingrained in your instinctual memories. I think it's there. Right. You know, it's there about culturally or maybe where you've come from, your birth parents, your grandparents. I would also celebrate it because you've made so much great shit. You've had an amazing life. So, and I think a lot of that was probably driven by the, you know, disconnect between who you are and being brought up in a strict Catholic background right so very you got, much so you did, yeah you did really you did good with all that i, I did mean, you, and then you i turned my, for then that. i turned my back on it and left it for almost 10 years where i just walked away from music i didn't listen to it i didn't go see bands i moved upstate i went back mm-hmm. to school i learned organic farming i got half my master gardening degree I turned to the earth for solace. And how did that work? Environmental Was it issues. healing? It was very healing. It and still now do is you very feel healing. like it's sort of settled you to go back and look at your history more? It, it has because I found out that my real grandfather was a farmer mm-hmm. and that a whole line, <laughs> the whole line of, you know, family members were farming people. Wow. And it's so funny. I love And how, I was driven to it. I was just compulsed. You know what, Deb? We've got 30 that. seconds left. Can I, you believe can it? Can you believe how fast this went? I told you, you've got too much to talk I about. But I just stories. want to make sure that people know where to find your music and stuff. And I want to say thank you for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm here every Thursday, 2 to 3 on the best radio station. Radio Free Brooklyn, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Where can they find your music and your stuff? I'll post it, but... Well, let's see. Uh, Spotify. Fuzztones is on Spotify. Teen Appeal can be sought out on certain European labels that have released us in the past. And um, one is called Misty Lane Records out of Italy. And then... um.